Hello folks, greetings and welcomes to the latest instalment of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast. Coming to you from the spare room that houses North Wales' premier one-person called Paul True Crime show, finding those obscure and often forgotten tales of dark deeds from the length and breadth of the UK and Ireland. That's myself as ever, Paul, the creator, voice and true crime enthusiast of the show's title. I thank you very much for joining me here today, and I hope that as you're listening into the episode, that everybody is good and well. Thanks also to those who've gotten in touch concerning our recent return to Carstairs in the previous episode, and also for the appreciation for this month's bonus Patreon one, The Little Girls Who Never Came Home, which if you haven't heard it, concerns two more tales of the horrific crimes of the past patients of Carstairs. If you're intrigued and you want to hear this and other bonus episodes including The War That Comes Home, The Leftover List and The Bravo Two Heroes, then it's easier to do than thinking you should probably refuse a coffee that Bill Cosby makes you and it's very reasonable. Just head on over to the Patreon site and seek out the True Crime Enthusiast podcast or you can use the link that's in the episode show notes each week. Or you can disregard all of these and still ask me how to do it over Instagram and I shall happily explain the same. I'm sure you know who you are there to who I'm referring to. No, I'm just joshing. Quick as a flash, you can be hearing these and the remainder of the 20 or so other bonus episodes because a couple of them have been released to the regular show before as they get voted for on the show's past birthdays when I always release one to celebrate the show's birthday. Or there's even the offer of other stuff for you guys, depending on your chosen level of support. Big thanks go to the returning and new Patreon supporters of the show, with shout-outs this week going to Nikki Priest, Pelly Italia, Jennifer Venn, Jane H, Anne Mitchell, Kim White, Alan McGuire, Madison McAleer, Victoria Norris, Jay Wortley, Ewan McGill, Nicola Endicott and Holly Langerhawk. Apologies if I've said anybody's name wrong there. Thanks so much for your kind support, guys. It means the world, and I hope that you've found the bonus content of the show interesting. Now, starting from early March, we're delving into the first multi-episode arc of this series. Well, I say first, I definitely have at least one other two-parter coming up this series. Perhaps others, I'm not too sure yet. And now I'm off on location shortly for a bit of a trip to do with that two-parter, which will be coming and all explained in a few weeks' time. I'd also like as ever to remind you guys that if you've got a case in mind you'd like to hear on the show, then by all means please get in touch to suggest it, or you can even, should you like to, research and write one up for a show's listener-written episode. As I said previously, I have the first one of the series already and it's an absolute corker and I know of a couple more other cases that are being researched and written as I speak for the show that I look forward to bringing to you as soon as I get them. There are a lot of great case suggestions out there guys, what can I say? But these are all a few weeks or several episodes ahead. We have today's case to get to, so I'm back in the room with that right now. Now I'm sure many people listening out there have had an ex-partner that when you met them they got under your skin, that at the time you were besotted with and felt that you'd do absolutely anything for. Some people just have the power to do that, don't they? In the majority of these cases, this infatuation is either reciprocated, leading to a long and happy relationship, or it's not meant to be and it runs its course. Sometimes you get away relatively unscathed, or other times it leads to a broken heart, 
I'm sure we've all been there or near there at some point in our lives, eh? But what about when the person you become obsessed with has such a Svengali-like hold over you, which you either allow them to gain or they manipulate you into, that because you're so obsessed with that person and they occupy your every waking thought, that there isn't anything that you wouldn't do for them, misguided or abhorrent or not. Even commit murder. For this episode of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, we're in the county of Norfolk in England's East Anglia region, and back to 1995. That was the year of the Tokyo subway sarin gas attack, Microsoft had just released Windows 95, OJ Simpson became the luckiest person on this earth when he was found not guilty of double murder, the Unabomber's manifesto was published by the Washington Post and the New York Times, and the fabulous band Oasis released what went on to become the UK's biggest selling album of the 1990s, What's the Story, Morning Glory. Fantastic band, absolutely massive fan here. And as a side note to the Gallagher Squabblers, sort it out you bloody pair of idiots, get back and give us, even if it's just a couple, of gigs filled with classics to take the roof off. Come on. It was also in 1995 that two women from different backgrounds with different experiences and outlooks on life met in what was ultimately to go on to be a fatal relationship. Because just six weeks later, one of them would be dead at the hands of the other, the victim of a senseless, unbelievably brutal murder. A murderer who claimed that she was simply a puppet driven to kill, all because of the hold one man had over her. The episode this week contains details and descriptions of a crime and events that some listeners may find disturbing or distressing, plus descriptions of a sexual nature. So as always here on the show, discretion is advised whilst you're listening in, guys. Bearing that in mind, please join the True Crime Enthusiast as this week we look back at a case I've entitled The Puppet. Eighteen-year-old Rachel Lean was a regular figure at the busy, well-equipped station gym at the former RAF Coltishall in the English county of Norfolk, which is the daughter of a serving RAF chief technician, her father Peter, she was entitled to use as part of the base's facilities and services. Her divorced father, who Rachel lived with in the village of Buxton, around ten miles or so north of the city of Norwich, was part of a squadron there undertaking the service and upkeep of the military Jaguar jet fighters, and since his post in there some years before, Rachel had gotten to know the base and the surrounding area well. Her parents had divorced a couple of years previously, with her mother Vanessa and younger brother Stephen still living nearby to Rachel's home on Buxton's Crown Road, but by late August 1995, Peter and Vanessa had begun to make inroads into repairing their relationship and there was talk of a reconciliation between her parents. For this to happen it would have capped off what was already a happy time for Rachel. She was a friendly, well-liked and conscientious girl, had a regular boyfriend who she was happy with, a 22-year-old Ipswich computer programmer named Robin Rishmiller, and a part-time job that she enjoyed working at the Marks and Spencers store in Norwich. However, a career in retail wasn't what Rachel wanted to do with her life. She'd set her heart upon a career teaching English, 
which had been her most passionate subject in school. To go about this, she had enrolled as a student in Southampton University and was due to start her first term there studying English language in September of that year. So with this sorted, Rachel's main concern around that summer was keeping fit. She had a passion for aerobic fitness and circuit training and enjoyed putting herself through a gruelling daily regime of these, concerned that her upcoming studies may mean that she might not have enough time to regularly work out. Most days she would think nothing of cycling the 10 miles or so to use the well-equipped gym and fitness classes at RAF Coltershall. So before her studies, she was getting as many workouts in as possible. When she was seen around the RAF base on the afternoon of Tuesday the 5th of September 1995 then, everyone who had come to know Rachel assumed that she was just there to use the gym facilities. As we've said, she was a familiar figure, and so nothing out of the ordinary was noted. She knew many people who were also familiar figures there, so nobody took any undue notice when Rachel greeted someone, walked out of the camp, and headed towards a lonely country lane near the perimeter of RAF Coltershall that headed towards the nearby village of Scotto. After all, she'd simply headed off with a friend of hers. But when Rachel hadn't arrived back home by that evening, her worried mother at first checked with the base, then local hospitals, thinking perhaps she'd been admitted after an accident, but all to no avail, and soon reported to the police as a missing person. Peter Lean, on detachment with a squadron in Italy at the time, was informed and flew home to join in the ensuing search for his daughter, which was launched immediately. Police sharing Rachel's family's sentiments that she was a happy girl with a bright immediate future and was unlikely to have run away. Over the next few days, as a combined team of police and civilian volunteers, including off-duty RAF personnel, searched the areas between Buxton and Coltershall, Rachel's mother and father, her brother, even her worried boyfriend Robin, all made public appeals. Ruled out of any involvement in her disappearance early on, her boyfriend Robin joined the Lean family in their combined public appeal, in which he made the tearful plea, Rachel, I love you, please come home. It was five days after her disappearance, early on the morning of Sunday the 10th of September, that a dog walker out exercising his dog down a remote country lane near Scotto noticed his dog worrying at something in the undergrowth in a copse just off the lane. Heading over to investigate, the smell of decomposition and the glimpse of clothing among the undergrowth was enough to send the horrified walker off to raise the alarm. It's always a dog walker or a jogger, isn't it? Rachel had sadly been found. When police arrived just a short time later and the scene was sealed off and examined, they could fully share the horror of what the dog walker had found. Rachel lay face down, her clothing dishevelled and her leggings and underwear around her ankles. Even though she'd been dead for some time, the area was still deeply stained with blood from the butchery that had taken her life. And butchery is an understatement. A later post-mortem found that Rachel had been hacked to death, for want of a better word, having a total of 57 stab and knife wounds of extreme depth to the back, chest, arms and throat. 
An examining pathologist later claimed that the wounds were the worst he'd ever examined in his lengthy career. Yet despite the appearance of Rachel's body and the disturbed clothing, there was no evidence of any sexual assault apparent. By that Sunday also, police had managed to establish Rachel's final movements, and shortly after the discovery of her body, detectives were heading across the country to an address in North Road in the St Andrews area of Bristol to speak to the last person it was established that Rachel had been seen with. That Tuesday afternoon, Rachel had headed to the RAF camp not to use the gym facilities for once, but to meet up with a relatively new older friend of hers, an attractive blonde 28-year-old named Maria Hnashuk. I think that's how you pronounce the surname, and it's how I shall going forward here through the episode anyway, who up until only a few days before had been staying in bed and breakfast accommodation in the village of Buxton, very near to Rachel's home. Police had already early in the investigation contacted Maria, who was staying at the home of her mother Ruth, and Maria had given them the story that she had indeed been out walking with Rachel that Tuesday afternoon, but had left her safe and well to continue her walk alone, as she had to get back because she was due to be collected and dropped off in London to catch a train to Bristol early that evening. Now with the discovery of Rachel's body, police now needed to speak to Maria again and she was arrested in Bristol later that Sunday evening, before being taken back to Norfolk's North Walsham Police Station. Over the course of 23 separate police interviews over the next few days, Maria maintained this story about leaving Rachel to continue her walk to go and catch a train. But speaking to other people who knew her, including her own mother, and with the findings of forensic experts examining Rachel's body, Several things came to light that made police doubt that Maria was telling them the whole story. Admittedly the last person who knew Rachel to see her alive, shortly after she claimed to have left Rachel, Maria had been seen in a severely distressed state, sat on the floor of a telephone box in Buxton Village, crying uncontrollably. Her mother Ruth also told police when spoken to, that when Maria had arrived at her house on the previous Tuesday evening, her clothing was heavily bloodstained, ostensibly from the severe fresh cuts that she had on her hands. She'd also arrived with a 10-inch knife that she then disposed of in the household rubbish. So it's suggestive already, yeah? To cap it off, when it was put to Maria, she couldn't explain why traces of her own blood that it was proven there was a 2,000 to 1 chance to belong to anyone other than herself had been found upon Rachel's leggings. On Friday the 15th of September 1995, Maria Hnashiuk appeared at Great Yarmouth's Magistrate Court, charged with the murder of Rachel Lean at a date between September the 4th and the 11th, where dressed in a green t-shirt and jeans, she spoke only to confirm her name and address. No application for bail was made by her appointed solicitor Edward Bell and Hnashuk was remanded in custody to await trial. Over the first few months of being on remand awaiting trial, Maria maintained her innocence, but several months later, when she realised the full strength of the evidence that police held against her, that she confessed her culpability to her legal team. But even then Maria Hneshuk still didn't accept full responsibility for the crime. 
She instead claimed that although she had killed Rachel, it was because of diminished responsibility. She claimed that her former boyfriend of four years, 33-year-old Ian Wells, had reduced her to such a mental state that she felt she had to kill Rachel in order to keep him. I know, right, yeah? The trial was to be one of the most sensational ever heard in a Norfolk court, and the story of Maria Nashuk and her claims, as revealed, is quite a remarkable one, which we'll get to shortly. So a trial for the murder of Rachel Lean began at Norwich Crown Court on November the 11th, 1996, presided over by Mr Justice John Blofeld, where Nashuk denied the charge of murder, but admitted manslaughter on the grounds of diminished responsibility. Prosecuting counsel Mr David Stokes QC, describing Rachel's murder, told the court, It was a frenzied attack. Rachel's heart was uninjured, so it's likely that death did not occur immediately and may have taken up to several minutes. Her leggings had been pulled down, revealing her lower half. The Crown say that this was not done accidentally. It indicates some sort of sexual motive towards killing Rachel. He went on to say that the wounds were of such severity that the examining pathologist claimed they were the worst he'd ever seen in his lengthy career, before adding, Maria Hnaciuk insisted in 23 police interviews that she was not the killer. She said she'd bumped into Rachel at the Naffy and left her to walk home alone. She is an accomplished liar. This was a calculating and wicked woman who killed a young woman on the threshold of life who had trusted her and then pursued a false defence. Describing Rachel, Mr Stokes told the jury that Rachel was a happy girl in a stable, loving relationship, who'd been excited to begin her English degree at Southampton University, and how she particularly enjoyed keeping fit, using the gym at RF Coltershall to do so, and attending aerobics classes. It was at one of these in July 1995 that she'd met and befriended the much older Maria Hneshuk, who was at the time living locally with her former boyfriend Ian Wells, whom she had a stormy relationship with. Referring to Maria and Wells, Mr Stokes told the court, They were known locally as the odd couple. They had frequent rows and public quarrels, leaving the defendant tearful and upset. On the day that she had died, Rachel had been seen with Maria walking near to the perimeter fence of RF Coltershall, where Maria was also a familiar figure after Rachel had introduced her to the gym facilities there, and Maria was later seen sitting crying on the floor of the village telephone box in Buxton. It was significant, Mr Stokes continued, that immediately after the killing, Maria had telephoned her former boyfriend Wells, who immediately came and collected her to drive her to London, where she then caught a train to Bristol, arriving at her mother's house with her severely cut hands. She had, however, appeared to be bright and chirpy as she'd washed the bloodstained clothing and disposed of the knife with which it transpired later she had so brutally stabbed Rachel. Blood traces on Rachel's leggings were later found to match that of Maria and the severe cuts on her hands when examined were described as being consistent with her hands slipping down the handle of the knife onto the blade while being used in a downward stabbing motion. 
So why on earth does a woman kill an 18-year-old girl, a friend of hers, that she'd met less than six weeks previously? To even attempt to answer that, it's worth looking at the life and events that had led Maria Neshuk to being stood in the dock. At 28 years old, Maria Monica Hneshuk, one of three children of a Ukrainian father Stefan and German mother Ruth, was already a woman of the world, with experience being a good, particularly apt adjective to use. She'd grown up in the city of Bristol, where her family still lived, but at aged 18 had left home. Thoughts for career in teaching came and went, giving way to jobs in first a bank and then an insurance company, before in the late 1980s, Maria moved to London, hoping to pursue a career in the music industry and obtaining a job in a record company to do so. It was a move that she thought would bring her into contact with agents or leading figures in the entertainment industry themselves, perhaps even some of the musicians whose posters had only until a few years before adorned her bedroom walls. And Maria, who by this time had already developed an insatiable sexual appetite, thought that if she wasn't able to achieve a niche for herself through any musical talent or ability that she had, then there were other ways, other wiles, to persuade leading figures to get her where she wanted to be. After all, she knew that she had the looks that would ensure she always had plenty of attention. So by 1991, Maria had a high expectancy from life, and was certainly not backwards in being forwards, having already had a string of lovers by that point, and equipped with a sexual appetite that would make even legendary top shagger Ken Barlow stop and have a sit down. Now, if that makes you happy, then there's nothing wrong with being a goer, is there? As we've said, an attractive blonde who could turn heads like the girls in The Exorcist, Maria had enjoyed a wild and varied sex life, but the urge for satisfaction was constant and insatiable with her, and always just that bit elusive. It was almost around the same time that she'd moved to the county of Norfolk, settling in the Norwich area, and it was with this move that the first real indications of her unstable nature were also revealed. This nature was fanned and fueled, perhaps even to a point created, by the man who out of the many she'd met in her life already up to then, was to make the biggest and most lasting impression and influence upon her, a man named Ian Wells. In November 1991, Maria, her dreams of a music career long since past, was working at a Norwich sports shop when she met the then married father of two Wells at an aerobics class. There was an instant attraction between the two, and with both of them unfazed by him being married with children, they soon entered into an affair. In due course, Wells' wife Sharon discovered the affair when she found a love letter from Maria to Ian and a photograph of her in his jacket pocket and confronted him about it. Sharon Wells was later to explain, I was still very much in love with Ian and wanted our marriage to work. I suggested he went away for a few days on his own to sort out his feelings, so he said he'd go off to a hotel for the weekend and mull everything over, alone. But on the Monday, he told me he'd taken her to the hotel with him. I was devastated. We had two young children who adored him, 
and here he was risking throwing it all away for a bit on the side. Even though Sharon had married Ian, who was a childhood sweetheart, against her parents' wishes in 1983, aged 19, she still loved him and wanted to keep the family together, so she decided to go to business consultant Ian's office to talk things over. She said later, I didn't go there looking for a fight, I just wanted to see where we stood, but the first person I saw when I walked through the door was Maria. I just saw Red. I grabbed her by her long blonde hair and pulled her off a chair to the floor. Then I coolly walked out. Following this very public bust-up, Wells left the family home in Felthorpe and moved into the first of a series of rented flats with Maria Henechuk, who had now gotten exactly what she wanted. By all accounts, she was the type of woman who, if she took a shine to someone, she was having them. Trivialities such as a wife and kids went right out the bloody window, they didn't matter. So she now had gotten Ian Wells exactly what she wanted. Except that from this, when I researched the case, I felt that the person who definitely gained the most, the best from it, was Sharon Wells for subsequently divorcing him. Make your own mind up when I tell you some more that the court heard about Ian Wells. Maria soon became absolutely infatuated with him and reportedly she allowed the manipulative Wells to completely take over her mind and personality. Indeed, by all accounts, he now saw her as his puppet. Whereas Maria had once been fashion conscious and had dressed stylishly, her outfits were now replaced with dowdy looking clothing on the orders of Wells, who controlled how she looked and how she dressed. He also hacked off her long blonde hair and refused to let her wear any makeup or jewellery. But what she could wear in abundance, again at his direction, was fetish gear like PVC this or rubber that, dog collars and leather galore, as Wells had begun enjoying dominance over her and now felt free to indulge his full range of sexual fantasies over her. And throughout all of this, Maria was forbidden to have any contact with other men. Maria and Wells had even drawn up a contract to this extent, in which she promised never to speak to or associate with another man at all, whilst promising to bring home women for them both, which Wells would fantasise out loud about. To this extent, he began forcing Maria to make explicit telephone calls to a series of chat lines whilst he listened in, often resorting to violence towards her if he felt she was not being explicit enough during the conversation. She also, at his urging, placed a series of Lonely Hearts advertisements within the local newspapers, angled towards women and on the surface for friendship. But reportedly anyway, these were just further fantasies of Wells being enacted. One example, revealed much later in court, is as follows. In March 1995, 29-year-old model and single mother Jennifer Ives began a friendship with Maria after answering a Lonely Heart advert in a local newspaper, which had been placed by Maria at Wells' urging. Over the next three months, Jennifer and Maria swapped increasingly steamy messages. Maria sent pictures of herself in a skimpy black PVC bodysuit and thigh-length boots and Jennifer reciprocated by posting Maria some of her modelling pictures and videos. 
In one letter to Jennifer, Maria wrote, Since seeing your fantastic face and body in the video, I've been fantasising a lot about you. I really want to drive you crazy and give you lots of pleasure. I can't wait to caress you, lick your body. Referring then in the letter to her boyfriend Wells, Maria added, I love being the dominatrix, taking control. It brings Ian to his knees. I know I can bring you to yours. I have a male slave. I want you to be my female slave. The letters developed into twice-weekly telephone calls, which again became increasingly steamy, but Jennifer soon began to suspect that it wasn't just Maria who was listening. In her account, Jennifer went on, Maria asked me what turned me on and whether I enjoyed being handcuffed. She described what she wanted to do to me. In her fantasies, I would be tied up and blindfolded and she would touch and lick my body all over. But I had an uneasy feeling someone else was listening because often Maria would ring back and ask something else as if she'd been prompted. Once, she asked if I could send some underwear that she could take to bed when Ian was away. I always thought that was a male fantasy and suspected it was for Ian, not her. After her arrest, police found a notebook by the phone with lists of questions she had asked me. I know now that Ian must have been listening in on the other extension. But despite any reservations that she might have had, Jennifer eventually agreed to visit Hneshuk at a cottage in the Norfolk village of, of Lammas in June 1995, where Maria and Wells were living at the time, on the provision that Wells was not there. She continued, When I met her at the station, I thought, wow, she was gorgeous. Any man or gay woman would have fallen for her. Nashuk drove Jennifer from here to a restaurant, where a small slip-up set alarm bells ringing with Jennifer. She said, she had told me she'd been raped by a DJ and never drank alcohol since then, but she immediately ordered a gin and tonic. At around midnight, we left the restaurant and drove to her cottage. It was a lovely little house, very cute and cosy. But as soon as we walked in, I sensed someone was there. I had insisted I didn't want Ian to be around, and she promised me he was away, but I was still uneasy. I kept seeing things that worried me, such as a doll with its head ripped off. She showed me where she and Ian played their bondage games. The room had beams that she could suspend him from. She said he was the slave and she wore PVC and rubber. By now I was getting frightened. I was so scared that I'd lost all interest in her. But where could I run to? In the middle of nowhere, in the middle of the night. The only way was to try and bluff my way through. I was trying to get drunk but I was so tense that I couldn't. She leant over and kissed me, so I tried to go with it. Then she asked if she could handcuff me, but I said no. Instead, she disappeared and came back wearing the same black PVC bodysuit and boots that she'd worn in a photo she'd sent me. She put a duvet down and we lay on it. She started kissing me and then unbuttoned my shirt. She sat astride me and kissed and licked my neck then started working her way down my body. Usually I would have loved that, but I was convinced we were being filmed and looked around the room for a camera. As I glanced over my shoulder towards the window, I got the shock of my life. There, staring at us blankly, was a man's face. I froze. He looked like a fox or wolf, 
with intense eyes staring straight into mine. I stared back, then looked away. When I looked back, he had gone. I sat up and said, You betrayed me, you bitch. He's here. But Maria claimed I had seen a ghost which haunted the house. A couple of hours later, during which time Maria had fallen asleep, Jennifer came face to face with Wells in the kitchen of the house, stating, I felt I'd been violated, almost raped, with him watching us through the window, but he acted as if nothing was wrong. I just wanted to get away in one piece. By now, Maria was like a different person. The night before, she'd been glamorous and confident. Now she'd taken off her makeup, flattened her hair, and dressed in dowdy clothes. She was flitting about nervously. She seemed terrified of him. By now, desperate to get away, Jennifer eventually persuaded Maria to drive her to the station. On the way, she asked if Ian could be involved in a relationship between us. She said it would be for her pleasure that he would have to sit in a corner and watch, but not get aroused by what we were doing. I said no, and she flipped, almost screaming at me, then slammed on the brakes and swerved the car. I've never been so relieved in my life as when I got on the train. Thank goodness I heard the alarm bells ringing and was at least on my guard. I've always relied on my instincts. These days, I trust them even more. Now, your spidey sense would be right off the bloody charts with that, wouldn't it? Lucky woman is all I can say. So it would seem pretty clear from Jennifer's accounts that around this time, Maria was already in a bit of a downward mental spiral. Over the course of their four-year relationship, Maria's boyfriend, Ian Wells, had reportedly transformed her from a normal, attractive woman into a meek slave who would do his every bidding. He was described as being this Svengali-type figure who completely dominated her, enthralling her one moment with tales of self-styled grandeur, styling himself as a successful business consultant and someone with connections to the SAS and MI5 who'd been involved with several covert and high-profile military operations. He even claimed to have directly been involved in events that influenced the end of the First Gulf War. But he would go from tales of heroics such as these one minute to immediately terrifying her the next with fabricated tales of organisations he belonged to and things he was involved with. He claimed to be a member of a covert French SAS-style group called the Knox, often being sent on undercover missions to Cambodia, able to access all manner of weaponry and truth serum drugs, even being able, with a single telephone call, to have people harm her family. And it's the first absolute shamble of bollocks of the series, because there wasn't an iota of truth in any of this. It was all a product of the fantasy world that Wells lived in. But what was realistic were the jealous rages he would reportedly fly into at any mention of Maria's previous boyfriends. It could be anything that set him off, a song on the radio, the mention of a place, or someone with a similar name, and he would then brood and become obsessively jealous about them, and he'd get her to describe her relationships, specifically her sexual activities with previous partners. 
Now it was a no-win situation this though, because what she described made him worse and brood and more violent, but he would still beat her if he thought she was leaving anything out or sanitising anything. In fact, he was reportedly so obsessed by her past lovers that he would go to extremes, or rather, he would urge Maria to do so, examples of which were heard during the trial. Now, during evidence, a statement was read out that had been taken from former Radio 1 DJ Richard Skinner. It's not someone I was familiar with, that, but apparently when I looked him up, who was the opening announcer and TV anchor for the 1985 Live Aid concert. It's a pretty good gig to have under your belt, that, eh? Married Skinner admitted having a five-month affair with Maria Neshuk in 1990, beginning when he had met her in a pub in London's Merleybone, where she was working for a record company called Rondor. He had slept with her that first evening, and even paid for Hneshuk to go with him on a promotional business trip to Tokyo, where they shared a hotel room throughout the tour. He claimed that the affair, nothing out of the ordinary, no jumping off wardrobes or David Carradine in the cupboard, nothing like that, He claimed that the affair had ended for personal reasons in February 1991 and some months later Skinner told how he had received a telephone call out of the blue from Hneshuk's new boyfriend Ian Wells. Wells told him, I have a very serious allegation to put to you that you raped my girlfriend. Skinner added, he mentioned Maria's name and said that it wouldn't look good for me in the press. I told him it was a load of rubbish and terminated the conversation. And that was all he heard, until 1993, when he was contacted again by Wells, who told him that it could be ensured that this rape allegation would not be disclosed to the press, but only in exchange for a financial settlement. Skinner immediately informed police about what he considered to be a blackmail demand, and sure enough, Maria had indeed written an account naming, I quote, a well-known DJ, Richard Skinner. This written account was discovered during the investigation into Rachel's death and detailed how Hneshuk had claimed she'd woken up in a Tokyo hotel room to find the former Radio 1 DJ lying on top of her. It went on in part. My dressing gown had moved up and he had roughly pushed my legs apart with one hand. I'd never had sexual intercourse before. I was paralysed. Richard Skinner said to me, you know you want it. He stopped talking, didn't try to kiss me, and raped me. He then got off and went to his bed without saying anything. The account was later read to the jury by Mr Stokes, who called the rape allegation completely untrue. He told the jury that no charges were ever brought against Richard Skinner, the claim had since been withdrawn, and had been admitted by the defendant as being a complete fabrication claiming Wells had simply forced her into it out of his jealousy. Pretty extreme, eh? Another ex-lover of Maria's from years before, hairdresser John Alger, and again allegedly the target of Wells' jealousy, was lucky to escape with his life. It was claimed in court that Wells was so obsessed by Alger in particular, who had had a five-month relationship with Maria some years before, that he called him at home constantly over a period of weeks, demanding to know intimate details from his relationship with Maria. When these demands were rebuffed, 
because if someone phones you up asking like that, you just tell them exactly where to go, wouldn't you? Things got a bit more drastic. One night in April 1994, Maria even set fire to John Alger's cottage in Norwich, reportedly to prove a devotion to Wells. She poured petrol through the letterbox of John's home in the middle of the night and set it ablaze. Fortunately, John woke at 4am to the thick smoke from the fire and was in time to escape from his burning home. He was to say later in court, When she met Wells, her personality transformed. She became frantic, worried and paranoid. She was frightened and seemed scared of him. He was a very jealous person. If that smoke hadn't woken me, I'd be dead. So it was alleged that Wells was this obsessive and controlling to the point of getting Maria to do stuff like this out of devotion for him, yet he would still urge her to seek out female partners to join he and she in sex sessions, as we've heard before from Jennifer's account. And it wasn't just limited to potential partners such as Jennifer, sourced from Lonely Hearts adverts, but, the court heard, nor was it simply at the urging of Wells. It was alleged that Maria had begun attempting to pick up women by herself in random encounters. Prosecution QC David Stokes told the court during the trial, There was a time when he seemed keen for her to bring home other women for sexual activities. The defendant was not averse to such plans. She herself seemed to have sexual feelings towards women. Now this was evidenced in testimony from an unnamed witness who described an encounter in 1995. She'd attended the Buxton Carnival as her 11-year-old daughter was appearing on stage in it and told the court, At about 8pm I went to the ladies' toilet. Just as I was about to close the door on the cubicle, I heard a woman's voice say, I like your dress, you look lovely. She was still staring at me when I came out of the cubicle. The way she was looking at me made me feel very uncomfortable. She said to me, I was testing to see how you'd respond. I left, but she approached me later on the dance floor and spoke to me. She was complimenting me on my shape and style of my hair. She asked where I worked and where I lived, making me feel very uncomfortable, as if she was trying to pick me up. The witness identified Maria Hnesiuk as being this woman. In another police statement given to the court, Maria admitted that she had lesbian tendencies and said that she was seeking a sexual relationship with the right woman. But also, she claimed that her relationship with Wells was nothing but fabulous. She told two female police officers, It's the best I've ever had. I prefer being with a man than a woman, but I do have feelings for women. You're obviously heterosexual, so I wouldn't look at you sexually. It's only when I know there are lesbian or bisexual women around. As all of these details were relayed to the court, Maria Hanesiuk broke down in the dock and wept constantly. On the sixth day of the trial, Maria went into the witness box to give her account of the whole story. She claimed that she'd been dominated by an older man although Wells was just 32, so it's hardly a huge age gap between them. And by now, 29 years old, she was dominated through violence and intimidation by him in every aspect of her life. 
Led by Defence QC Oliver Blunt, she told how Wells had resented her past relationships, where to the point of his obsessive jealousy, he felt that the only way he would be happy is if these people were no longer alive. Wells, she claimed, had therefore drawn up a list of five people who had to be destroyed, four of her previous boyfriends and one of his former girlfriends. If she eliminated the first two, he would allow her to go to the gym again. If she destroyed all five, he would then ask her to marry him. Indeed, eh? Can you believe that? She agreed when questioned that she was totally devoted to Wells, despite his repeated physical and psychological abuse towards her, describing him to the court as being very confident, much more interesting and stimulating than previous boyfriends she had had. She told of his claims that he was involved with the SAS, plus the organisation called the Knox that sent him periodically to Cambodia, and how he'd told her he could get access to truth drugs, and that at a nod from him, people could harm her family. I believed him, I was in fear, she told the court. She went on to describe the contract that Wells had made a sign, in which she promised to bring home women for them both and have no contact whatsoever with other men, and that how he had become increasingly jealous of her past lovers, to the point he had made her set fire to her ex-partner's cottage, and had made her fabricate the rape allegation against Richard Skinner. Claiming that once Wells had this hold over her, he had moved her to the middle of nowhere, a series of villages outside Norwich, where she was allowed no money of her own, no access to a car, and was very isolated. Instead, she was kept but demanded to be dominant in bed, treating Wells as her sex slave, whilst he would fantasise out loud about her having sex with other women. She told the court, He felt he was dominant at work, so at home I was to be dominant in bed. He especially liked it if I dressed up in latex. He liked PVC and rubber. He wanted me to be involved with a woman. That fantasy became a big thing. It was about that time that he started hitting me. It was infrequently at first, then every two or three days. This, she claimed, had led to her having cuts, black eyes, and as a result, times that she was not allowed to leave the house, Wells forbidding her to, because she was too marked. She was not allowed to go to the gym or aerobics, was forced to quit her job, and although she was allowed to visit her family in Bristol periodically, she was forbidden to stay with her parents there, instead Wells demanding that she stay with her brother Marco and her sister-in-law Wendy. Whenever she was here, the court heard testimony from Wendy that Wells would ring the house in the early hours to check where Maria was, and on one occasion had insisted that she sleep in her father's car, parked up by a telephone box, so that she could answer his calls whenever he chose to ring. Abusive and controlling, yet be his dominatrix at all times, and procure women to join in with them. How shitty does that sound? Maria told how she had on one occasion attempted suicide by taking an overdose of aspirin, and broken had written Wells a series of several letters, describing herself as a tart, scum, trash, the list goes on. It was exactly how, she said, Wells made her feel. An example of one of these letters was read to the jury, a suicidal-sounding love letter 
that Hneshuk had sent to Wells pledging to cut links with the past, in part reading, I can destroy one male here in Norwich, one female, and also one male in London. I have never loved anyone as I loved you, yet all I've brought you is pain. You won't grieve for me for long. You have a whole crowd of females clamouring to take my place. All I want to do is end my life. I'm sorry I wasn't a brunette or bigger busted. I might have had a chance with you then. What a disgrace I am to you. See you in the next life, if there is one. Now however this may sound though, the prosecution alleged that the picture Hneshuk was trying to paint of her merely being Wells's puppet in all of this, mentally broken by him, was largely a figment of her imagination, a barefaced lie. It was, to an extent, attention-seeking. Mr Stokes said that police had found photographs, letters and several notes written by Hanesiuk that were very sexually explicit, and that many of these revealed a particular interest and obsession of hers with women's buttocks. There were also many photographs of Maria displaying her own in several different poses, and he drew reference to the dishevelled clothing upon Rachel's body, suggesting that a possible reason for Rachel's death was that Maria had made sexual advances towards her and been rebuffed, because there was no suggestion that Rachel had any interest in sexual activity with other women. The prosecution produced testimony from two witnesses who claimed that Maria had for several years, even long before she met Ian Wells, enjoyed kinky three-in-a-bed sex sessions, detailing occasions when she travelled from Bristol to a hotel near Epping Forest, sometimes at just two hours' notice, to indulge in these. And far from being forbidden to go out to the gym or to attend aerobics, it was claimed that this was exactly how Maria had met Rachel in July 1995 through a shared aerobics class. The court heard that the two women had hit it off when they had attended the same aerobics session, and before long, Rachel had introduced Maria to the gymnasium at RAF Coltishall, where they began training together and soon became firm friends. But Rachel didn't see the dark, neurotic and slightly disturbed side of Maria that the prosecution alleged existed at all. All Rachel knew was that a new friend had moved into the neighbouring village of Lamas with her boyfriend Ian and planned to make a fortune from a company with him that they hoped would be a lucrative success. The business they'd started, and apparently the company had been formed and registered, although it wasn't named, was set up to sell swimwear, capitalising on the then global success of the TV series Baywatch, which I'm sure we all remember and needs no introduction, Michael Knight meets the beach pretty much. I was never too much of a fan of it really myself, I have to admit that I only ever used to tune in, I'm being completely honest, yeah, for Pamela Anderson. I was a bit more like, oh, go on, run faster CJ, yeah. But according to Maria, she was to become a director of this company, complete with company car and high salary, which to the 18-year-old Rachel, flattered by the older woman's attentions, she was left nothing but impressed with. Yet for success with any aspirations, hard work and diligence is required, and Maria was a bit too unstable for this. I mean, you don't try burning your ex's house down if you're the full shilling, do you? Surely, so... 
There was undoubtedly a strong element of fantasy to these boasts to the younger woman. However, the following month, the month before Rachel's death, all thoughts of company cars and swimwear had gone for a Burton's because Maria and Wells had split, ostensibly for good, and Wells had returned to live with his parents in the Norfolk village of Tavisham. Rachel felt sorry for Maria following the split, already having some idea of the depth of her feeling for Wells, and had innocently invited Maria to accompany her, her boyfriend Robin and some friends of theirs, on a day out to cheer her up, which Maria had accepted. It was alleged that Wells blew up when he found out about this outing, as even though they were not together, he still wished to maintain the Savengali-like hold he had over Maria. As punishment for this friendship with Rachel, it was claimed that Wells had thrown Maria out of the cottage that they once shared, forced her to watch as he'd thrown all of her possessions into a pond in the nearby village of Stratton Strawless, and forced her into staying in a bed and breakfast accommodation nearby, right next to Rachel's home in Buxton. When the money to fund this ran out, it was claimed that Maria had even had to live rough for a week, yet still having to report in to Wells daily, either in person or by pre-arranged telephone calls. On September the 5th, 1995, a desperate Maria had telephoned Rachel in great distress and asked to meet up with her. The trusting, good-natured girl immediately made the time that day to see a friend in trouble, as she viewed her, and met up with Maria at R.E.F. Coltershall's naffy shop that afternoon, with the two women set off for a walk and a talk towards a dead-end country lane nearby. Just 12 minutes later, Rachel Lean, the student so excited to start her English course at Southampton University in a couple of days' time, was dead, butchered beyond belief. What exactly happened down that lane was known only to two people, one of whom could never shed any light upon why. But what was known, what was admitted, is that during that fateful walk, Maria Hneshuk produced a knife which although never found because it was disposed of in Bristol, was later determined to have been at least 10 inches in length and proceeded to hack the unsuspecting Rachel to death, stabbing and slashing her some 57 times. She then dragged Rachel's body into some undergrowth in a nearby copse. When asked by her defence counsel about the killing of Rachel, Nashuk described what she did. She went on, I got on very well with Rachel, very well. She was my friend. Ian hated her. He blamed Rachel for my contact with other men. He compared her to me, saying she had everything ahead of her, and I had nothing. Because of her, I'd gone out and broken every cardinal sin. He said if I hadn't met Rachel, I would never have met any other men and been friendly. She told the court that their four-year relationship had ended the month before the murder, when Wells had thrown her out of the home that they shared, forcing her to live rough. She'd ended up for a period sleeping under a bush, living out of two carrier bags and existing on snacks and fast food. She'd even stolen a 10-inch knife from a local garden centre, which she kept, she claimed, for protection and to cut up her food. Maria said, I was really depressed. I was at the lowest point I'd ever been living rough with everyone looking at me as if I were a tramp. My life had no existence. 
It was then that she'd called Rachel in tears requesting to meet. Describing her final meeting through her own tears, Nashuk said, As we were walking, Rachel was saying that her father was in Bosnia and that she was worried about him. She was saying about going to university and that she was looking forward to it. When we walked back, I could see the lights of Coltishall and I thought, I'm going back there to nothing. I started stabbing her. I stabbed her in the back. She turned around and called out my name and I just carried on. I stabbed her lots of times. When asked the simple question, why? Nashuk replied, because she had to die. She had everything and I had nothing. When asked about Rachel's leggings being pulled down, the final indignity, as the prosecutor claimed, Nashuk denied she'd done this, claiming, I just remember dragging her by her hand and her ankles and putting her by a tree. Her leggings came down when I was pulling her. At the end of her evidence, Mr Blunt told the court, There was no rational explanation for Miss Lean's death. She was young, innocent, vibrant, on the threshold of her life, and wholly undeserving of the manner of her death. The question is, why? It's no consolation that there appears to be no rational explanation. Indeed, the only logical explanation is that she'd been brainwashed. This defendant was transformed from a pleasant, attractive, cheerful outgoing girl to the figure described in this court. Dishevelled, barefoot, cropped peroxide hair, lost, lonely and in the words of a neighbour, rapidly going downhill. Cross-examined by the prosecution, Nashuk expressed a remorse, saying, I feel very upset about what has happened to Rachel. I still can't believe what happened. I don't believe in violence. She admitted, however, that she had intended to kill Rachel when she pulled the knife out, claiming, I had the thought going round and round in my mind. It wasn't, I'm going to do this, but Ian saying, you've got to do this. I wasn't in a temper, she just had to die. A psychiatrist appearing for the defence, Dr Donald Grubin, told the court that Haneshuk had killed Rachel to please the domineering Wells in her desperation to salvage her relationship with him. He said, She was willing to take the desperate act of killing someone to salvage the relationship. I don't think that at the time of the killing, she was capable of thinking in a reasoned manner. Nashuk's claims that she'd killed Rachel for Wells were backed by Dr. Grubin, who told the court, Wells has a fantasy about his power to control people, the ability to have people killed by someone who is his slave. Psychiatrist Dr. Henrietta Bullard, also giving evidence, told the court that following sessions she had had with Nashuk while she was on remand awaiting trial, it was her professional opinion that Nashuk could think of nothing except the overwhelming need to be reunited with Wells when she had killed Rachel, and that she still did not appreciate the enormity of her crime. Describing how Hanashuk had recounted the humiliation, degradation and torture she'd reportedly suffered at the hands of Wells, Dr Bullard told the court, This was a sadistic relationship. I have no hesitation in saying that Mr Wells must have been a cruel and sadistic man, to have behaved in the way he did towards this woman, and there is ample evidence to support that. 
He seemed to be obsessed with controlling and shaping Haneshuk, and obsessed with creating the impression he was a powerful, influential figure. In his closing speech to the court, Mr Blunt told the jury that Haneshuk had been suffering from such an abnormality of mind as not to know the seriousness of what she was doing. Mr Stokes, for the prosecution, argued against this, claiming that she perfectly well knew the consequences of her actions, and her flight from the murder scene afterwards proved that she knew she had committed a serious crime and that she fully intended to try and get away with it. Further, Mr Stokes warned the jury to be wary of anything that this compulsive liar Maria Haneshuk told them. As to her boyfriend Wells and the defence's claim that he had incited the killing of Rachel, Mr Stokes reminded the jury that it was Maria, not Ian Wells, that was stood in the dock. He had already been tried and convicted in his absence. After a 17-day trial on Thursday the 28th of November 1996, it took the jury of six men and six women deliberation of just under four hours to reach a unanimous verdict of guilty of murder. As Rachel's mother Vanessa let out an involuntary scream upon hearing this verdict, Maria Haneshuk buried her head in her hands and wept uncontrollably in the dock. Sentencing her to life imprisonment, Mr Justice John Blofeld told her, You have been rightly convicted by the jury of a chilling murder. This chilling murder was committed by you when you clearly knew what you were doing. You deliberately chose, brutally, to end the life of Rachel Lean. She had done you no harm, she had been your friend. You killed her by repeatedly stabbing her. You then covered her body to prevent discovery and have lied thereafter, lied and lied again. I accept the psychiatric evidence that you were suffering from an abnormality of mind, but it is clear that your abnormal personality can, in certain circumstances, make you a very dangerous woman. Haneshuk was also sentenced to seven years imprisonment to run concurrently for attempting to, the, to endanger the life of John Alger in 1994 by trying to burn his house down. Dressed in the attire she'd worn throughout each day of the trial, a white cardigan and black trousers, Haneshuk was then led sobbing from the dock by a prison officer to begin her life sentence. After she'd been taken away to the cells, Rachel's father Peter walked across the courtroom and hugged and kissed weeping female members of the jury, thanking each of them for convicting his daughter's killer before also hugging detectives who'd been involved in the investigation. He and his wife, who'd reconciled in the 14 months since Rachel's murder, said that the time had been, I quote, sheer hell. This should have been an exciting time in our lives, when we should have been sharing in Rachel's adventures and experiences at university and comparing them with those of our friends. Now we can only wonder. The couple told how their heartbreak and loss was summed up by an anonymous card that had been left on Rachel's grave. Her father Peter explained. It said, A lot of rain has fallen this year. If we could gather up all the tears for Rachel the world would have a new sea. There are always flowers on a grave, often we don't know where they're from. Vanessa added, We see ourselves as a couple again, but we're taking a day at a time. Rachel would have been pleased, but that's no consolation. 
I still see Rachel's quirky little smile every time I close my eyes. The question, why Rachel, will stay with us until we die. It seemed she lost her life through offering friendship. But there was emotion too from Maria Haneshuk's family, because never forget the families of the perpetrators suffer also, and are often overlooked in cases such as these. Maria's father Stefan said from his home in Bristol, following the verdict, It has been very stressful and we are far too upset to talk. She's my daughter and I love her dearly. I do not believe that Maria would have committed this crime unless there had been other influences at work. Now despite his name featuring heavily at the trial, Ian Wells was never charged with any offences in connection with the crime and he did not appear at Haneshuk's trial to give evidence, although he reportedly did visit her while she was on remand. But immediately following the completion of the trial, Norfolk police stressed that the case was not closed and that they were intending to launch a fresh investigation into examining the role that Wells had played in the case. A spokesperson claimed, We have plans to question him further about how soon he knew of Rachel's death and whether he had reported his knowledge to anyone. Now, Wells had been arrested and questioned by police for 20 hours shortly after the discovery of Rachel's body, as that same day he'd collected Maria and driven her to London to catch her train to Bristol. But he denied any knowledge of her actions and was released without charge following this. Both prosecution and defence at Anashuk's trial decided not to call him as a witness and he didn't attend the hearing at any point. It was felt by barristers that Mr Justice Blofeld may possibly have asked for him to be brought to court as a witness, but this option was never to materialise. Now a subsequent investigation by Norfolk Police was indeed launched, and on Wednesday the 14th of May 1997, Ian Wells was re-arrested after voluntarily attending North Walsham Police Station with a solicitor. He was questioned overnight in connection with, I quote, events leading up to and surrounding the murder almost two years before. And once again, no charges were brought against him. Ian Wells has to this day never faced any charges concerning the murder of Rachel Lean. Whilst serving her life sentence, Haneshuk, meanwhile, reportedly befriended notorious Soham accomplice Maxine Carr, and the pair were photographed sunbathing together at Foston Hall Closed Category Prison in Derbyshire. In 2006, she also appealed the minimum term of her sentence, which had been set at her trial as 14 years. Her case was reviewed at London's Royal Courts of Justice on the 9th of July 2006, where following review, Mr Justice Wilkie upheld the minimum term of 14 years, directed to by taking into account a victim impact letter dated the 27th of July 2004 from Rachel's father Peter, setting out the views he held as to the effect that the offence had had on his family and what he considered to be the appropriate course that the court should adopt on such an application. However, the judge said he had also taken into account arguments that had been made on Hanashuk's behalf, including a letter from her brother-in-law Michael Battenow, suggesting that she'd been given a longer sentence than necessary because of the high-profile nature of her trial. Therefore, he took into account the period she'd spent on remand, 
14 months and 8 days and set the minimum term pursuant to Schedule 22, Paragraph 3 of the Criminal Justice Act 2003 as 14 years, less these 14 months and 8 days. This meant that upon successfully convincing a parole board that she no longer posed any threat to the general public, Maria Hanesiuk could seek release from prison on licence from September 2009. She is today believed to be released from prison, living quietly under an assumed name. The case recounted here today was one that I found quite a thought-provoking and sensationalised one, with the horrific murderer poor Rachel almost seemingly an afterthought alongside these tales of domination and fantasy threesomes and all that bollocks and what amounts to abuse. And that's not right, is it? Because at the core of the whole tale, first and foremost, you have the murder of a young woman who today could have had a successful career or a family of her own, and she was hacked to death for what? For what possible reason? It makes no sense whatsoever to me. It's just a tragic waste of life. And as we often find with cases that we recount here on the show, we're just left with no end of questions. And it's now the thinking out loud bit here for myself. Because how much of the account do you believe? On the one hand, there's this picture painted of the completely broken, submissive Maria under the spell of Ian Wells so much that she obeys her lover completely, is every command to the point where he controls her looks, her attire, her movements and interactions with people, he can even control her to the point where she's willing to fabricate a tale of rape to ruin an innocent man's life, or to try to burn down her ex's home with him in it, even arguably to commit a brutal and completely senseless murder, all because of his jealous, possessive streak. But there raises the question, how much of her actions, as we've heard here, were the result of Wells's coercion? Or was this sensationalised to a degree also? As much as Hanesiuk's defence attempted to paint this picture of her being led almost unwittingly into this sex life of domination, him being a sex slave, his voyeurism with her and other women, getting her to wear PVC all sorts, the cruelty and abuse, making her live rough, the list goes on and on and on, the prosecution also produced witnesses and evidence that suggested Maria didn't need too much leading here. The court had heard how in her past she enjoyed a great number of lovers and a varied active sex life, heard testimony from former partners who told how she had enjoyed regular threesomes with them and how she'd indulged in affairs with married men, monogamy to her being nothing more than a pretty good word to get on countdown. Richard Skinner, to name one, she'd even begun a relationship with Ian Wells as the result of an affair. There were also plenty of these explicit letters and notes written by her, as we've heard about. Photographs of Hanesiuk posing, doing all sorts, dressed as all sorts, and the testimonies from Jennifer Ives and the woman at the carnival about Maria's behaviour with them. And there was evidence to suggest that Maria also lived constantly in part in a fantasy world having delusions of grandeur about such things from being the next big pop star to cornering the swimwear market as the director of a successful company. So, did this tendency to live in fantasy, add arms and legs onto things or over-exaggerate stuff, come into play in her story to police and through her evidence at trial? 
Or could she herself be as manipulative as Wells was allegedly, do you think? Regardless of what you may think of the guy, and personally, I think he sounds a total shite hawk, really. Remember, Ian Wells never answered any of these claims in court, he never appeared as a witness, and the results of two separate investigations failed to lead to any charges being brought against him. No former partners of his also came forward to support Maria's claims of him being the monster he was alleged to be. Now is that quite telling? Is there no smoke without fire? But then why did she kill Rachel that day? Was Nashuk's account true as she gave it? And broken down psychologically, she'd reached out to a friend for help that day, but then instead just snapped and hacked her to death almost maniacally. 57 stab wounds, remember? Or did she lure Rachel to her death that day with the premeditated intention that she was never going to leave alive, then flee in an attempt to distance herself from the crime, the ultimate in a list of abhorrent actions committed by Hineshuk, alongside fabricating rape and attempting to burn down someone's house? Was it possible that, rather than driven to actions such as these at Wells' urging, Maria got some sort of kick out of them and was quite complicit, and murder was the ultimate? I found it quite telling that although two psychiatric professionals gave testimony having examined her and claimed she was suffering a degree of diminished responsibility at the time of the murder, no one claimed she was actually insane. She was also sent to a prison, not a secure hospital, so therefore, if she wasn't mad, then it stands to reason that she was bad, doesn't it? But was she deliberately shaped into being bad? Or was it already there inside her, at least to some degree, and tragic Rachel ultimately bore the senseless brunt? What do you guys think? I'm eager to hear your thoughts concerning the case, which you can do in the episode thread as ever in the show's Facebook discussion group, through any of the show's social media, or you can even email the show to get in touch should you wish. I have just been thinking out loud as ever as the episode concludes. I never profess what I'm saying to be gospel, of course. They're simply my own thoughts and theories. Neither of my balls is crystal, and if I'm wrong, then I'd hold up my hands and say so. It's why I always invite you guys to get in touch and chip in with your own views and opinions. It's quite a shocking case, this one, isn't it, though? With plenty of food for thought. But I do ask you, if you take anything away from it, Please remember, over the tales of dog collars and threesomes and voyeurism, that sort of thing, remember instead, first and foremost, the young woman who had a clear idea of her life goals and was looking forward to setting off to achieve them, who went out one afternoon to comfort a distressed friend, only to instead senselessly lose her life in a horrific manner for reasons that have never been made fully clear. Remember a devastated family, and the loss that they've had to try and come to terms with over the past 25 years. Remember instead, Rachel Lean. I thank you very much for joining me here today for the episode, and I'm wrapping up now here to get on with this series' first multi-episode arc that will be coming to you shortly. If you're all caught up and want some extra enthusiast, you can head on over to the Patreon site, Seek out the show and get yourself access to the back catalogue of monthly bonus episodes that are available for supporters. Some right obscure and dark old tales in that lot too, I'm telling you. Otherwise, I shall be back very soon. So all that's left is as ever for me to say that I've been, I still am, 
and hopefully still will be Paul, the true crime enthusiast, and I wish you guys all good and safe times, and hope to catch up with you again shortly. Take care folks, and goodbye for now.